Welcome back to Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom here to talk about watching some actual football for the first time in seven and a half months as we've now had five days to digest Ohio State season opener at Minnesota. So Griffin, as you sit here now, five days after watching Ohio State earn a 45 to 31 win in its season opener, how do you assess what we saw in Minneapolis on Thursday? Uh, not perfect, of course, but honestly, I think after digesting uh, the the rest of the weekend's games, um, that there were some pretty encouraging signs for Ohio State, and I think the fact that they had a kind of an imperfect game and still ended up putting up, you know, forty five points on the road in a tough game, they still won by two touchdowns. I think I think those are very encouraging signs, especially when you kind of look around the country and see what uh, comparable teams um, did this past weekend. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I think, of course, you know, we, we talked about it over the past couple of weeks about how this thing was going to go. Ohio state fans often expect perfection and they often uh, react strongly to things that don't go well, but you know, we talked about it going into the game. Like we weren't expecting Ohio state to just roll over Minnesota with no trouble. We weren't expecting Ohio state to, shut out Minnesota or anything like that. So to me, I wasn't particularly surprised by anything really that happened in the game because I had said last week, I thought it could be kind of similar to a 2017 Indiana game where there would be a struggle for a half and then in the second half, Ohio State would take the game over. And Ohio State didn't quite pull away the way it did in that Indiana game. Ohio State only won by 14 points. They never led by more than two scores in this game. So they, they never quite took total control of the game in a way that they could just put it away and, and cruise to the finish. But they did do what they needed to do in the second half to take care of business to ultimately win the game after going into halftime with certainly some tension, certainly trailing in the first half. and. Obviously, I think a lot of the attention in that game was on C.J. Stroud. And I will say the one thing that I would say that I was wrong about that I didn't expect was C.J. looked a little bit more uncomfortable than, than I expected in, in the first half of that game. And I had said last week I picked C.J. Stroud as my offensive MVP. I had said I thought you know he was going to go in and have a great debut. And I would not say he had a great debut. He, he, he did not have a spectacular performance in his first game like we saw with Justin Fields a couple of years ago or Dwayne Haskins the year before that. It, it was evident watching that first half that this was a guy who was really playing his first real football at, at Ohio State. And, and you could see some growing pains there, certainly, in that first half. And then, you know, second half, really, you know, it's kind of funny because you look at the final stats and you go, 294 yards, four touchdowns. Wow, he had a fantastic game. But for those of us who watched the game, a lot of those yards came on big plays that his receivers made, like Travion Henderson's 70-yard touchdown. All he had to do there was throw a screen pass, and, and Travion did the rest of the work. You know, Chris Olave had a 61-yard touchdown where you know he he tiptoed the sideline, he weaves his way to the end zone. A, a lot of the work there was done by the receivers. So 
you don't come out of his first game going, wow, like CJ Stroud was amazing. But at the same time, you also don't come out of it going, wow, CJ Stroud was bad. Like, I think, you know, people react in the moment and, you know, obviously we saw the tweets from people in the first half going, where's Quinny orders, you know, well, why is CJ Stroud out there? He's not the guy and people overreact in the moment. But I think when you, you watch the whole game and then you kind of go back and you rewatch it and you have some time to digest it, you know, to me, I think realistically, it was kind of what you should expect from a quarterback who is playing his first real college football game, not to mention playing on the road, playing in a rainstorm and playing against a quality opponent. Yeah, I think this really speaks to the fact that like Ohio State fan expectations and really just, you know, nationwide expectations for the Ohio State program and specifically at the quarterback position are just pretty much through the roof because even me and you were not predicting CJ Stroud to even throw for 250 yards going into this game. And I think that if you would have told us last week that CJ Stroud was going to throw for almost 300 yards and four touchdowns, that we would have been saying, you know, okay, uh, let's start the the Heisman campaign already because that's what it would seem like on paper. But this is one of those cases where, you know, the numbers really do not tell the whole story um, because if if you look at that game, I mean, CJ Stroud, I think I think it was kind of one of the most concerning things uh, about the game at the quarterback position was that there were just a lot of plays where there were guys, and it, it was really evident if you did a, a rewatch of the game as well that there were wide receivers sometimes that were streaking down the middle of the field or or the sideline like completely uncovered, wide open. There was one with Garrett on actually on the one with uh, the interception um, to Chris Olave. Um, Garrett Wilson was wide open, streaking down the left sideline. There was another play where C.J. Stroud uh, passed the ball to Garrett Wilson on the left sideline, but he had uh, Jackson Smith and Jigma running wide open down the middle of the field. Um, and really, in, in that interception was just kind of alarming because I, I even took like a still a screenshot of a while, while I was watching it back from one angle. Um, like C.J. Stroud had no pressure on that play, you know, in the pocket. He a perfectly clean pocket, and just that still image, like Chris Olave is just wide open for a second there. And you're, and you're just looking at that, like, you know, how could that have ended up in interception? But as you said, you know, it was his, his very first game, his first ever throw uh, in the college ranks. And um, I think the fact that all of those things were true and he still ended up with almost 300 yards, four touchdowns and a two touchdown victory on the road against a legitimate uh, big 10 team speaks to the fact that, um, you know, there could be big things ahead for CJ Stroud even if he does miss some throws sometimes because of the, the team that's around him. Yeah, I, I agree with that evaluation, but I do think there were some throws that he's missed. Like there was another one I remember. I think it was, I think it was early in the second half where Jackson Smith and Jigba got wide open over the middle and he, and he tries to throw in a double coverage to Garrett Wilson and he, and he just missed that. And I, I did feel like there were some things that he was missing. Ryan Day didn't seem overly concerned about that when he was asked about it on Tuesday. CJ Shroud didn't seem overly concerned about it when he was asked about it after the game. And so I don't know that I'm overly concerned about it because again, I think we do have to, you know, not lose sight of that. It wasn't just his first start. It was his first time ever throwing passes in an Ohio state game. And I think you could get the sense watching that first half that, you know, he was nervous that, you know, he, he, it was a lot coming at him at once. He admitted that after the game. And so to me, you know, if he goes out against Oregon, and has the same kind of performance in the first half, then maybe it's like, okay, like maybe there's some red flags here. Maybe, maybe he's not quite where he needs to be right now. But to me, like, I don't come out of that first game 
even even though I think I think what the first game did for me is it made me realize, okay, you you can't just assume the guy's going to go in and be Justin Fields like that. That wasn't a realistic expectation to set because we, I, I think, occasionally we take it for granted just how good Justin Fields was. Like Justin Fields was a rare talent, and most likely the guy coming in after him is not going to be quite as good, especially not right away. And so I think it does like, it, it makes me realize like, okay, like don't put unrealistic expectations on the guy because Justin Fields was spectacular, but I, there's nothing that I come out of that game and go, man, like, I don't think CJ Stroud can be a successful quarterback. I don't think CJ Stroud can get Ohio state to the college football playoff. Those are things that I don't think. I think, I think CJ Stroud can absolutely be, the quarterback that this team needs him to be. We just have to see continued growth. And of course we'll get another opportunity this Saturday against Oregon. Yeah, I tend to agree with those things. I will say though, you know, if I'm an Ohio state coach, if I'm Corey Dennis, if I'm Ryan day, I probably would rather be playing Akron this week uh, or Tulane than, than having to play Oregon because CJ Stroud did get tested. And, you know, he might be playing a vastly better team despite how Oregon looked on Saturday. They did not look great, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, even so, you know, even if uh, Kayvon Thibodeau is, uh, you know, injured for the game, it, Oregon still has, you know, a lot of really high-level talent. And, you know, I think this might be, you know, one of the weeks where Ohio State fans are going to be wishing potentially that, that C.J. Stroud, you know, had another kind of warm-up week to really get acclimated into the system. Yeah, I think that's true of a lot of things, and I think it's especially true for the defense because we saw in that first game that this defense is still a work in progress, which I think we kind of expected it to be. But to give up 31 points, to give up over 400 yards, again, and last week I said it, I I, I thought Minnesota was going to score some points. This team. I thought Minnesota was going to have some success moving the ball against this team. So I'm not shocked by anything we saw. I'm not necessarily hitting the panic button about anything we saw because we have to remember seven banks wasn't out there. Cam Brown wasn't out there. That's two guys who are projected starting cornerbacks for his team. Six of their seven starters in the back seven were first time starters. And so I think some growing pains were to be expected, especially when you're going up against, an excellent running back who unfortunately got hurt and Mohammed Ibrahim and a really, really good offensive line. I think some growing pains were expected at the same time. I, I do think it's certainly valid to have concerns about what you saw from the defense on Thursday, because we do know how much of his defense struggled last year. And, you know, we do know that the defense was not great in that first game. Again, I'm kind of in the boat of like, don't panic about what you saw in week one. Let's see how things grow in week two. But I think certainly with all the young players and moving parts that they have on that defense to have to go straight from that now going into Oregon, that can certainly create some anxiety about, okay, is this defense ready for such a big test right now? Yeah. And I think a lot of things we were actually talking about uh, last week came true when it comes to how Minnesota was going to attack the Ohio state defense. We, we knew that they were going to come in with a run-heavy approach, and that's what they did. So, you know, them, you know, putting up 200-plus yards on the ground, not the most shocking thing in the world, despite the fact that the last couple of seasons Ohio State has had one of the top uh, 
run defenses in the country. Another thing is we kind of talked about the fact that Minnesota does not have the best pass attack in the world and that it, it might not, you know, th- put the same type of pressure on the Ohio State pass defense, obviously, that an Alabama or an Indiana did uh, last season. So we might not have seen, you know, the true test of that pass defense just yet. Who knows if we'll see that against Oregon because they threw for even less than 200 passing yards uh, against Fresno State. So, so that kind of remains to be seen. Um, but, but that w- was kind of something we predicted that, you know, we might not, you know, see all that. Um, yeah, I mean, and the total yardage, I mean, I it doesn't necessarily scare me all that much from an Ohio State perspective just because of how it kind of broke down. They didn't get like totally gashed in any one area. So it was kind of like a, an even spread there. And, and uh, the Ohio State defense, it looked good early on. Like uh, when I was tweeting about, you know, how much the Ohio State defense was rotating personnel and whatnot early on, it was kind of like a positive thing because Ohio State, you know, stalled uh, Minnesota on their first two drives. But then like the second I tweeted that, um, you know, they give up that 56-yard run uh, to Ibrahim on the, the fourth one. They start scoring the ball um, and then just really chewing up the clock. And, you know, that was a huge factor in this this game as well. When you look back, I think in one of your stories today, you pointed out that um, Ohio State had its fewest offensive plays with 48. Um, since like the tw- the 2015 uh, Michigan State loss, which I'm sure everyone will remember. And so, yeah, I mean, the Ohio State defense was on the field for a long time, a lot of plays, and, you know, just kind of grinding with that Minnesota offense. I, I think it'll be interesting uh, to see what Minnesota does from here to kind of gauge what the what this performance really meant. Um, obviously, the Minnesota might not look the same without their star running back moving forward, of course, but I still think it'll be interesting to see, you know, if Minnesota ends the season, you know, looking like a real uh, contender in the Big Ten West or not. We're almost 15 minutes into this thing here. Ohio State won the game, and we've mostly talked about negative things. So I guess that that's kind of appropriate for one of the questions we got last week. But let's talk about some positive things. And I think you know one big positive that stands out is certainly what we saw from Mayan Williams and Travion Henderson at the running back position. And neither of them got a lot of carries, and Mayan Williams got nine carries. I think Travion might have got two, but we saw each of them make a really big play. Mayan Williams on that opening drive with a 71-yard touchdown run. I, I talked about it for months. I, I I said it for months. I thought Mayan Williams was going to be starting running back. He was the starting running back, and I think he showed why. 125 yards on nine carries. To me, I think Mayan is that's exactly what you need to see from Mayan for Mayan to you know keep being that starting running back going forward. And then Travion Henderson. It only took one play, really, just to see why the guy was the number one uh, running back in his class, and that was that 70-yard touchdown, uh, taking a screen pass to the house, just putting that elite speed that he has on display. And I know I come out of that game, and I think a lot of Ohio State fans coming out of that game feeling like those are the two best running backs on the team. I know Master Teague's the veteran, but – you just feel like those guys add a little bit something more. You just feel like Mayan and Travion, they're both more dynamic runners. And I think, you know, one of the questions I have coming out of that game is, hey, Mayan runs for 71 yards on the first drive, and then he doesn't play for an entire quarter. One of my big questions going forward is, okay, what's this running back rotation going to look like? Because to me, it, it should be those two getting getting most of the carries. I don't think Master Teague is going to get shuffled out entirely, but I think those are the two guys that need to have the ball the most. And I think 
you know, particularly, you know, a guy like Mayan, if he's your starter, you can't be taking him out for three drives at a time to rotate through Teague and Crowley and Henderson. I think, you know, we talked about it last week. We weren't sure if they were going to go for free running back rotation. They go for four running back rotation. And I get it because they like all those guys and they wanted to see what all those guys could do. But I think now you go forward to, you know, this game against Oregon, to me, you, you've got to cut it down to at least three and maybe two guys. And to me, the two guys that have to be a part of that are Mayan and Travion. Yeah, it's so funny how this game was like a microcosm of everything that the Ohio State fan base and a lot of, you know, writers and everything were talking about at the running back position all offseason. And, um, you know, I remember just last season when like two games into the season, even with Master Teague and Tracer, and the, a lot of fans were saying, you know, give Steel Chambers the ball more because he's looking good. And so sometimes, you know, I, I get hesitant with, you know, some of the, oh, Travion Henderson's going to be able to come in and, and uh, you know, do this, that, and the third right off the bat. Like, you know, a lot of people thought he might. Um, but I will say after that game, I'm, I'm completely uh, convinced. I, I mean, it was a small sample size. Let's say that. But as of right now, from what we've seen, I mean, it's really hard to deny that, you know, Mayan Williams and Travion Henderson, you know, shouldn't be getting the lion's share of touches here among uh, Buckeye running backs. And I mean, Travion Henderson, man, he, he did not have very many uh, touches at all. I mean, he only had two carries. And yet still, you know, on that uh, screen pass, he was still able to make, you know, such a highlight reel play that everyone's going to remember. I think for sure we're going to start seeing, you know, Teague a little bit get phased out. I mean, in, in what we were talking about after the game, even like, you know, Teague's a fourth year guy. He's, you know, he's paid his dues in the system. So like, you know, can you really just cut him out of the offense completely? And so we were kind of kicking around the idea, like, you know, do you use him for short yardage situations? But then it's like, do we even really know if he's actually better than, you know, a Mayan Williams or a Travion Henderson in a short yardage situation? So it becomes kind of hard to figure out where do you, you know, slot him in there in that rotation. Um, I mean, let's just be honest. Master Teague is, is a very maligned, for, strictly for his on-field stuff. Obviously off the field, great guy. And everything like that, but strictly on the field, he's a he's a very maligned character among the Ohio State fan base right now. I mean, um, you know, I was just tweeting today about Ohio State coaches saying that um, you know they're thinking about shortening up that running back rotation going into next week, and a lot of replies on Twitter are just saying like, "Yep, I mean, Master Teague's got to see less carries." So um, I do think we're going to see that moving forward. Um, Marcus Crowley, I think, kind of like how we were talking about last week, even though he did get I think six carries. Um, in the game, I, I I don't know how much we're going to see of Marcus Crowley, barring injury to other guys, by the time the season's over. And this may be an overreaction based on one game. Maybe we come out, you know, next game and and, mine will, and it's the complete opposite. Maybe the other guys go crazy. Um, we really don't know. But but at least for now, I think a lot of the things that a lot of people were thinking going into the season came true and unfolded the way that everyone thought in the very first game. Yeah, I mean, some of it's confirmation bias because, like, everybody's looking forward to see Mayan and Travion. They both go out there and, and make a big play. So now it's like, okay, that confirms what we thought. We are reacting to a very small sample size. Ryan Day said that today when I asked him about it. So we'll see how this ends up, ends up playing out. But to me, you go into this Oregon game, to me, Mayan's the guy who probably should be getting most of the carries. And if, if you trust Travion in terms of ball security, then, then he's a guy that's got to have a role in there as well. Two guys who I don't think we had any question about, but I think we're still reminded how good they are on Thursday night are Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. We saw them combine for three touchdowns. 
uh, two for Olave, one for Garrett Wilson. And Olave in particular to me really impressed me. And the thing that specifically really impressed me about Chris Olave was, I think the senior bowl put it out there, but he had 76 yards after the catch. And that was the thing I really noticed watching Chris Olave is I felt like he was more dynamic, more elusive in the open field than we had seen him before. Cause he's always been that fantastic deep guy. He's always had that fantastic ability to track the ball in the air and make a play on the ball in the air, but that ability to make plays in the op- open field. I think him doing more in that area and adding that to his game that can really take him that next step from being a guy who's, you know, already a fantastic receiver to truly be in that elite guy, truly be in that guy who can be the best receiver in the country, being that guy who can be a high first round draft pick next year. Even though going in, I already would have said he's the best player on the team. He impressed me as much as anybody just with what we saw on Thursday night. He even said uh, on Tuesday, um, talking to us, he said that one of the biggest reasons why he came back to the team, aside from wanting to win a national championship, wanting an extra year with his brothers, uh, you know, yada, 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 was that he wanted to improve his run after catch uh, capabilities and, and, and his capacity to, to make plays, you know, not just, you know, catching a ball five yards out, uh, away from the end zone, but actually, you know, catching a screen pass you know, turning it upfield and, and really making a, a, a huge play. And we saw that in spades, obviously, on Thursday. It's kind of funny with these guys. They don't need, you know, 10 catches uh, to have some monster 100-yard game with, you know, two touchdowns. It only takes a few catches for these guys because they just get so wide open on the field. It really was just picking up, you know, where they left off from last year, even though, you know, Gary Wilson's obviously playing on the outside this year. But if you remember last season, it was just Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson just streaking, finding themselves wide open all the time. And even with the change in quarterback, even with Stroud missing those guys a few times when they were quite wide open um, on, on several occasions, they still both uh, managed to you know put up some very big numbers, both score touchdowns. Um, I, I've been saying that uh, you know it's a, a tough crowd for Garrett Wilson with the Ohio State coaches. The fact that he doesn't grade out as a champion after catching a, a touchdown and for 80 yards, there was a, a pass, uh, uh, the first deep pass of the game from Stroud early on that I thought maybe Wilson should have caught just based on some of his highlight reel, you know, circus freak catches that he's made in the past. But yeah, that was, that was all very interesting. And um, one guy that I kind of got left out of the mix there was, was Jackson Smith uh, and Jigba, the new starting slot receiver for the Buckeyes who, who only had two targets in the game, I believe. And we thought that we were going to see, you know, a lot more catches from him this year. Maybe we still will, but he did kind of get left out of the mix there along with a lot of those other younger receivers who uh, Ryan Day had been saying going into the game that, you know, a six-man rotation. You were going to see Julian Fleming. You were going to see Marvin Harrison uh, Jr. Emeka Abuka. We did see those guys, but for very few snaps. I think they all played around like five, six, seven, eight snaps. Um, not much out of those guys. And, and but why? Why do you even need them to play when you've got Chris Olave and Gary Wilson, two of the top receivers in the country, uh, doing what they're doing at the highest level once again? Yeah, I was a little surprised we didn't see more of the other receivers. But again, I think part of that's a product of the fact that they only had forty-eight offensive plays. Like again, they. They really didn't need to rotate because there was no reason for those guys to be tired because they didn't play that many plays. I mean, those second half drives, most of them were so short because they just made a big play. And so I think that had a lot to do with it. Again, I I feel like we're going to learn more about that this week maybe than we did last week because presumably they're going to run more than 48 offensive plays 
against Oregon. And this is another big game. I mean, I do think coming out of that first game, I do think, okay, that suggests they're going to lean heavily on Olave and Wilson. Like I, if Olave and Wilson don't get 75% of the snaps against Oregon Saturday, I would be surprised. But I do think a game that has longer drives and, and more offensive plays, naturally more opportunities are going to come those guys' way. So I don't, I don't know that I read too much into that just because of how few offensive plays there were in that first game. I think what it also kind of confirms for me as well is when you look at Jamison Williams over at Alabama now, you just kind of think like, man, like even as good as Jamison Williams is, where where was he going to get snaps this year? Albeit only played 48 snaps, uh, you know, on offense for Ohio State this past week. But you just have to think to yourself like, man, where was that guy going to get plays? Because, you know, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are just, you know, absolute monsters out there. Yeah, it's hard not to see a play like J-Mo made in that first game, a 94-yard touchdown and go, man, like, why didn't this guy do more at Ohio State? Like, why couldn't Ohio State find a role for him? But yet I do feel like the consensus among most people, it's like, well, yeah, like he probably just wasn't going to play that much at Ohio State. So it was a good move for him to go to Alabama. And, you know, Ohio State's going to be just fine at receiver without him. But, uh, you know, certainly uh, he's a guy that could make a big impact for Alabama. And we'll, we'll talk about Alabama near the end of his show talk about players who were impressive I was also really impressed with the offensive line you had pointed out that they allowed zero sacks in the game which is something they did not do in any of their games last year and you know offensive line is one of those positions I always get a better feel for when I rewatch the game than I do watching it live and I was impressed with all five of those guys I thought all five of those guys played really well you know I, I thought you know, a couple of guys who probably aren't getting enough love for that first game or Thayer Munford, Nicholas D. Frayer, like just watching Thayer Munford, like he was absolutely just stonewalling guys in pass protection. Like, like he, guys just were not moving against him. He, he was just locking them down consistently. And I thought Nicholas Petit Frayer, I would I really thought he looked really good run blocking from that left tackle spot. And I know he had said this offseason that run blocking was an area where he wanted to get better. And, and I, I was really impressed with what I saw from him. I thought Paris Johnson and Dewan Jones both looked really good in their uh, first starts over on that right side. And then Luke Whipler, a guy that we didn't know until the day of the game was going to be starting at center because Harry Miller was unavailable. And I thought Whipler had an excellent game. I thought, you know, there were several occasions where he was pancaking his guy into the ground. I, I know pro football focus gave him a very low pass blocking grade, but I'm not really sure where that came from because watching him, I thought he did. I thought he did well. I thought uh, there were several occasions where, you know, he was pulling outside and he was picking up a blocker on the edge and, and really showing his quickness. I mean, I think the one thing you could knock him on was a, a couple of his snaps were not great. Uh, CJ Stroud had to scoop them up off the ground. And so that's something he's going to have to continue to work on. But, you know, I thought, I thought Luke played well enough to where I now have to question and go, okay, when Harry Miller comes back, is Harry Miller the right guy? Because Harry's still kind of unproven. And I liked what we saw from Luke. So either way on that, we'll see. But all in all, I think a really, really encouraging first game for that offensive line. Yeah. And if you think about the offensive lines that Ohio State's had the past couple of seasons, they've had they've been littered with, you know, NFL caliber players, Wyatt Davis, an all decade Big Ten performer, um, you know, Josh Myers, you know, this, that, and the third. 
But one thing, if you look at statistics, they did give up sacks. They, I, th- I don't know this for a fact, but I want to say the last year they might have given up the second most sacks or something in the entire Big Ten, something like that. Uh, just a considerable amount of sacks. And that wasn't always on the Ohio State offensive line. That had a lot to do with Justin Fields having a tendency to sometimes hold onto the ball too, too long, sometimes try to make plays with his feet that would get him into some trouble and, and give up some sacks. So despite how good those groups were, they did give up sacks, sacks statistically. Yeah, and th- this group, uh, like you, like you said, like I, I noted the other day, um, they did not give up any sacks. Uh, CJ Stroud had a, a lot of clean pockets, a lot of time back there, which is what kind of you know underscored the fact that you know what made some of his his errant passes kind of more you know noteworthy was the fact that he had a lot of you know clean pockets. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the the the, the switch in lineup really paid off for Ohio State. Um, you know, at least through one game, moving Thayer Munford in. Uh, getting Dewan Jones up there, he obviously had a, a super high a PFF grade, I believe. Luke Whipler, I mean, yeah, he had that one, like one or two bad snaps. But would anyone really have noticed that Ohio State was missing their starting center? Um, I don't think any. A lot of people would have been uh, uh, noticing that whatsoever. I mean, I almost forgot that it like that that was the case during the game, I, just from you know not thinking about that uh, all that much. And like you said, I mean, I think people tend to think of Harry Miller as this you know five star recruit talent, you know this can't miss type of guy, but you know, actually on the field, uh, you know, last year he had his struggles. And by the end of the season, whether it was injury related or COVID related or otherwise, uh, Matt Jones had supplanted him in the lineup by the, the very end of the season. You know, a lot of factors possibly at play there. But yeah, you have to wonder now, uh, will Luke Whipler continue to see time at center? I really do not know the answer to that question. Another thing factoring in there is the fact that Harry Miller did miss the spring with injury. And, and you know, he, he hasn't had as many reps as Luke Whipler in the last, you know, X amount of months, you know, he was going to be the starting guy. And, and I think, you know, that kind of is a vote in, uh, of confidence for Harry Miller. The fact that uh, coach stud pretty early on in the preseason did designate him as the starting, the, you know, the go-to starting guy. So you'd have to think he was the established starter. So will he really, you know, continue to be behind, behind a guy that's a red shirt freshman? I'm not sure, but that will definitely be something to keep an eye on moving forward. Yeah. My guess would be they're going to go back to Harry, but it's just the question of who who's better between them. We don't know. We, we do know that we've seen Luke play one game at center and he did really well in that game. So I think either way, that's an encouraging sign. Cause I think now you can, you can feel good about, okay, if, if Luke Whipler has to play again this week, like he's already shown that he can play at a high level of this position. If, if depending on whatever happens over the course of a year, if he's back in that lineup, you know, I think you have reason to feel good about that. And so I think that's a certainly a positive thing, no matter which way you spin it. You know, to get back to the point of sacks quickly here too. I think that's one thing that CJ Stroud deserves some credit on. Is I think I thought CJ did a really good job of getting the ball out of his hand when he needed to, and, and not putting himself in position to take those sacks. Now, granted, there's probably two or three that you could look back on and go, maybe he should have held onto the ball a little longer. Maybe there was a play he could have made where he, he just threw it away. But I thought that was one thing he did well, which I think, you know, again, if you were looking for nitpicking flaws on Justin, maybe that was one of the things that you could nitpick with Justin is that at times he would hold on to the ball too long and he'd end up taking a sack. I thought CJ did a really good job of, of getting rid of that ball, you know, when, when pressure was coming toward him. Obviously he had the one interception, which was a big mistake. But other than that, you didn't really see CJ put himself in harm's way he just he didn't hit all the throws that he had to hit but really our about one interception 
that was the only time where he made a play that was just like a reckless play. And any of that, it was more just like him being inaccurate. I think that's one positive you could take away from CJ is that he, he was making smart plays. He, he didn't, he didn't always necessarily make the right play, but you didn't see him doing reckless things at the ball that would put the team in bad situations. That's actually a great point. I don't even know if I had thought about that, you know, all that much before, but that is very true. He wasn't, you know, forcing throws into bad spots or, you know, he wasn't taking any sacks, although he had great protection. The one, the one time he did get cracked pretty good. That was, uh, you know, in front of the line of scrimmage, a couple of yards downfield, I was not, you know, behind the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, it was funny. He had a comment about that after the game saying that, you know, he hasn't taken a hit like that in two years because he hasn't played football in, in two years. Um, so that was, that was pretty funny. But yeah, you make some really good points there about TJ Stroud. But I will say Ryan Day and the coaching, coaching staff do like to pepper in there. You know, maybe it's for the, the opposing coaches and whatnot listening that CJ can run the ball. CJ can run the ball now. I, I think that might be to, you know, keep some defenses on edge, wondering if he does have a little bit of Justin Fields in him. Although we, we obviously did not see much of that. Only a couple, what, maybe two designed runs or one designed run in the, the whole game, at least one, right? Yeah, I think there might have been one. Yeah, I do think it was evident just even just from a couple of plays watching him that as an athlete, he's not Justin Fields. Now, he's also not Dwayne Haskins. He's somewhere firmly in between the two. But I think, you know, you could just tell from watching him run. He doesn't have that same kind of burst, that same kind of speed that Justin Fields does. He does move better than Dwayne did. So I think, you know, he can do that. But I don't think it's ever going to be a focal part of his offense because I just don't think that he has that same kind of twitchiness that Justin Fields did that really made him dangerous in that area. Yeah, I agree. And I I think Ohio State, you know, until teams are able to stop it, I think Ohio State is going to keep calling a lot of those quick passes, those those screen passes um, to get the ball out quick so he doesn't have to take damage, so that he doesn't have to scramble and make plays with his legs like a Justin Fields, and so that they can utilize the weapons that everyone knows that Ohio state has and the weapons that proved that they can turn uh, a negative one yard pass into a 70 yard touchdown play. You wrote this week about 10 of the biggest surprises from the game one rotations. I think a lot of those were on defense. What was the biggest surprise to you? Like what was the one thing in terms of how playing time played out on Thursday that surprised you the most? There were so many. There were so many. So let, let's, let's just touch on a few here. First of all, the fact that returning starting slot corner slash cover safety, Marcus Williamson, did not see any snaps at all. That was not something that I was necessarily actively thinking about during the game, per se. But looking back on that, it's like, wow. I mean, he came back for uh, his super senior season, um, a, a returning starter. I thought he might have even been a captain coming into the season. So for him to not play at all... Is, is he possibly injured? He missed some some time. It could have it could have been cautionary. He did play on special teams, so he was healthy enough to play. But it definitely could have been cautionary in that aspect. That was a big one for me. Another one was the fact that even though Steel Chambers only played nine snaps, I believe it was that he played more than senior linebacker Kayvon Pope, who a lot of people thought was a front runner to maybe start the season. You know, back before we got into more of the bullet conversation you know, in the early parts of spring. And Kayvon Pope didn't play any defensive snaps either. That was a big surprise to me. Although I had been kind of wondering how they were going to fit so many guys into those roles. Tommy Eichenberg starting at linebacker was a shock to me. You somehow sniffed that out 
earlier on, I that was really a surprise to me, to be completely honest with you. I don't know if you wanted to expound on any of those. Another one was that that Craig Young only playing six snaps. I thought that he might be played more in that bullet position this game because of Minnesota's run-heavy attack. Instead, uh, Ronnie Hickman really gobbled up basically almost all of those snaps at bullet, um, and he led the team in tackles with with 11. Um, all of those were, were big, big surprises for me this week. Yeah, one of, one of our commenters, Buckeye2011, uh, kindly pointed out in our, our questions, Fred, this week that I deserve some credit for being on the Mayan Williams train, but I, two things I wish I would have committed to more firmly. One was, was Tommy Eichenberg starting this game because I, I did get that feeling when Ryan Day named him first among the linebackers on Monday. And even just some of the things I had heard, like, you know, I, I fought back the other day about, I remember being at one of the camps this year and I was watching Tommy lead a drill and one of the coaches referred to him as a starting linebacker at Ohio state. And I was like, does that mean anything? Probably not, but maybe it does. And I think it did. I think it did. You know, but, but there was just, there was a undercurrent all off season that you could kind of feel like Tommy's a guy that's making a move and he was being a little bit overlooked. So that didn't shock me at all. I didn't predict it though. I'm not going to say that I did predict it. And so I, I can't take credit for that one. Also, after our discussion last week in the little, the little mini depth chart I do for my game preview, I put Craig Young at bullet, even though I've been saying all off season, but I thought Ronnie Hickman was going to start at bullet. And I kind of bought what you were selling there in terms of, you know, they're playing a, a team that's, more run heavy, they'd probably go with more of a linebacker at that bullet spot. But I think that was interesting because I think the way they divided up the playing time there, that showed me that Ronnie Hickman really is firmly the starting bullet, the lead bullet there. Because if they had played, you know, if Ronnie had started, but they'd each played half the game, that would have been a little bit different because, you know, then you could say, oh, maybe they're just a true rotation. But the fact that Ronnie played so many snaps and led the team in tackles that tells me Ronnie's a guy that's going to play a big role on this defense all year long especially considering they played the bullet as much as they did against an offense where maybe you would have thought they wouldn't play the bullet as much the Eichenberg one is interesting because you know it's actually one of the questions we were asked this week by Minbuck and he asked do you believe Eichenberg got the start and snaps over Ganton Simon because he's at the top of a depth chart or was it a matchup thing? And I do think it could be a matchup thing because I did one thing I did notice today when Kerry Combs was asked about Tommy Eichenberg was he he specifically mentioned that Tommy Eichenberg was the right guy to start that game. And I think that makes a lot of sense if you look at the matchup there because Tommy Eichenberg's a guy, I know it's going to be taken as a criticism if I say it, but He's kind of tough Borland 2.0. Like he, 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 there's a lot of similarities there. And I don't, I, it, it feels like such a low hanging fruit comparison that I hate making it, but it's just like the way they talk about them, the kind of players they are. I do think there's a lot of similarities, right? I do think Eichenberg is more athletic than tough was. So I do think there are some things Tommy can do that maybe tough couldn't. That said, I think Cody Simon's a more athletic guy than Tommy Eichenberg is. And if I'm going to, I'm going to guess right now, I think Cody Simon is going to start alongside Tarajan Mitchell against Oregon on Saturday. I, I thought Cody Simon looked really good in the first game. 
I think Tommy Eichenberg's going to play too. I think he's going to be part of that rotation too. You know, my feeling, I, I thought both of those guys performed better than Dallas Gant did in the season opener. I think Dallas Gant could still have a role, but I, to me, I thought Simon and Eichenberg and Taraja Mitchell all played better than Dallas Gant did in, in that first game. But I think I could definitely see it where, okay, they wanted to start Tommy, who's a little bit bigger guy, maybe a better kind of in the box run defender against Minnesota. And now as they go against an Oregon team that's got more speed, I wouldn't be surprised if it leans more towards Simon, who I think is a more athletic, rangy guy. I completely agree. I think Kerry Combs really made a point. Like he really emphasized that Tommy Eichenberg was a good matchup for that game. He really, like he really did uh, underscore that that point, um, which which makes you think that he might not be long for the starting lineup, or at least for this upcoming week. And yeah, like you said, like Cody Simon, he made a huge play that, that jumped off the screen at you. He had that huge sack. That's something we did not see from Tommy. We didn't see a huge, you know, flash play from, from Tommy Eichenberg. It's kind of funny, though, looking back when, he, when we had our, our media day with the linebackers, you know, Tommy Eichenberg was not getting a lot of media love in terms of a lot of attention from uh, the writers and whatnot who were dispersed to other guys, which just kind of shows that I don't think a lot of people were anticipating that he would climb up the depth chart. I, I know I certainly... Um, was not expecting that to be the case. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that lineup and, and rotation continues to move, um, especially with this the the this emphasis this week that we seem to be seeing with, you know, maybe Ryan Day and Kerry Combs want to start figuring out who the guys are, who those 11 guys are. I've been really high on Cody Simon, you know, ever since seeing him this spring and just, you know, seeing his body. I mean, he just looks, you know, like a, like a physical freak of nature, you know, I, I like what I was hearing out of him too uh, today, just in terms of being, you know, a genuine guy that's, you know, all about the group. Not that any of them really aren't, but um, you know what I'm saying. And um, yeah, and then back to the point about um, Craig Young and Ronnie Hickman. I think one of the things, one of the reasons why I was really thinking that Craig Young might be the guy also was because um, talking to some of the recruits, the Ohio State linebacker recruits, um, CJ Hicks, and at the time before he obviously decommitted, um, Deshaun McCullough as well. They were talking about at one of those Obets uh, events. They were saying that the the Ohio State uh, coaching staff and Al Washington were really selling them on this idea of look at Craig Young. He's a guy that that you know you guys could kind of be like uh, stepping into this this new bullet role and kind of selling them on this hybrid linebacker role with Craig Young kind of being the face of that role. That's they were they were naming Craig Young, you know, several, back in the spring and whatnot. Um, you know, maybe since then the, the, the coaching staff has just seen that, you know, Ronnie Hickman's better suited for the role or what have you. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons why I was thinking that Craig Young was kind of going to be the guy there. He just seemed like the hotter name, I guess, you know, in the offseason when talking about the bullet. But, you know, Ronnie Hickman obviously made a lot of tackles. And another guy I wanted to touch on was, was Dallas Gann as well. Um, I don't think a lot of people are agreeing with me on, on this this take because I think they saw a lot of they saw the roughing the passer penalty that Dallas Gant uh, was flagged for. They saw a couple of missed tackles. But in Dallas Gant's credit, I will say, he seemed to be in the right spot to make the play quite a bit. It's just he wasn't always making the play. He had a couple of big um, missed tackles. One of them, I think maybe even on that, that fourth and one run, uh, I think he had a big miss on, on Ibrahim, uh, like two yards behind the line of scrimmage, and, and he busted it obviously for 56 yards, and there were some other missed tackles along the way there. Then obviously the roughing the passer play as well. Um, a couple other times he was right there, but he just wasn't making that play. And, you know, I don't know how the coaching staff looks at that. Is it, 
you know, much more of a negative. Is there any silver lining in that? I don't really know from the coaching staff perspective. Um, he's a guy that missed a lot of time this offseason with injuries and things of that nature. Um, how much time will he see moving forward? I tend to think he'll be in that rotation still because he is a senior. And I think he was just he was getting there. He just wasn't making the plays. Yeah, I do think that's a good point on Dallas Gant. I, I agree with he I thought I thought he looked good making plays in the box as a linebacker. I thought there were times where, you know, out, out in space, like I said, he had some missed tackles. Uh, you know, I thought there, there were times that, you know, he did make some mistakes. So it was an up and down game for him. And, and you know, I'll, I'll be interested to see how they, you know, continue to rotate at that linebacker position and across this defense in general, because we saw 24 different defensive players see the field in that first game and you know ryan day said after the game on thursday that you know he did think that they you know may need some more continuity at some positions talking to kerry combs on tuesday he didn't outright say that but when i asked him about it you know he did say we need to have our best players on the field and so i got the vibe that like that was kind of what he meant by that that like yeah you're probably not going to see quite as much rotation against Oregon, you know, part of a reason why they rotated as much as they did in that game was because Minnesota was doing a lot of crazy things in terms of their personnel alignments where they were putting, you know, seven offensive linemen on the field. And so Ohio state was putting more big bodies in the game. And so they, they were, they were rotating a lot to try to match what Minnesota was doing. So that was part of it. You know, I do think some of it was like, you know, it was a little bit surprising that like, okay, here comes like steel chambers, like playing linebacker all of a sudden in like the middle of a significant, you know, period in the game. And now granted, that's not to say steel played bad. He actually made a couple of nice plays, but I do think that they need to figure out like, okay, these are our best guys. And like, these are the guys that need to be on field. Cause you know, you're going into a game here where you could easily end up in a position of the game, you know, being on the line in the fourth quarter and you need to stop to go win the game. And I think you need to know who those guys are. And so I am going to be interested to see, you know, what it looks like here in the second game. I, I do think there's going to continue to be some rotation at all positions, but I do feel like we're probably going to see less rotation in the second game than we did in the first game. I will say it was very entertaining and fun to see all the, all the rotation early on, because usually, you know, every year covering a team, you get the usual lines that, you know, every player has had their best off season today. They're going to be in the rotation. This guy's ready to make, you know, he's an impact player now. Like that's the line on literally almost every player on the team. And this was a game where we actually saw a lot of those guys that we never, or some of us might not have expected to actually be playing. And you're seeing them early on. You're seeing JTT and legend Cavazos and Bryson Shaw and Craig Young, you know, all in the, all running onto the field at the same time and one uh, mad dash at one point, <laughs> which really kind of, was a, a play that was the play where they, they, they rotated like the they subbed the entire defense off the field at one point it seemed like I think uh Kerry Combs called it like a New York sidewalk or something like that earlier on um in Tuesday's press conference so yeah that stuff was all was all uh you know pretty fun to see but I don't think a lot of Ohio State fans were very amused by it you know once Minnesota actually started scoring points you know I think a, a one thing that I don't think we've touched on a lot is the actual you know cornerbacks themselves the fact that Denzel Burke, a true freshman, um, got a start. The fact that Ryan Watts, a redshirt freshman, was the other starter. Obviously, they had injury issues at cornerback. Seven Banks and Cam Brown, we, we knew both of those guys had been dealing with injury issues 
in the preseason. Obviously, Cam Brown is coming off of a torn Achilles. Seven Banks missed the entire spring with an undisclosed leg injury of some sort. And those were guys that missed some time in, in, in open practices. They would be off on the side field or not participating. And you, we, we wondered aloud you know, whether or not that was more of a serious thing, whether they were actually going to miss time or whether that was just you know, some, some rest because they had a lot of reps in the preseason and whatnot. Neither of those guys played, which would seem like an alarming thing for Kerry Combs and company. Um, but I don't think it turned out all that bad, to be honest, for them. Uh, you know, the fact that Demario McCall was out there as well, a cornerback, I think, you know, a lot of Ohio State fans probably got enjoyment out of that. Got a kick out of, you know, a sixth year guy that was playing running back and receiver for the past five years, playing, you know, 15 snaps, nothing to scoff at um, for him. Although we will see if he continues to get, you know, that type of time. Um, that was another, you know, storyline from today was that Ryan Day, you know, they, they didn't say anything about those guys being, you know, coming back healthy or, or any uh, which way on that, you know, and, and at safety, Josh Proctor's another guy. He went down late in that Minnesota game. We, we don't know for sure if he's going to be playing or not. It seems like there is some optimism, though, because Ryan Day said after Thursday's game that he that he hoped that he would have a couple of those guys back. But we shall see. We probably will not know anything more on that uh, until we actually get that official availability port or report um, like three hours before kickoff. Yeah, we'll see. I think there's going to be some suspense there in terms of that secondary, in terms of, you know, it could be Seven Banks and Cam Brown and Josh Proctor out there. It could be Ryan Watts and Denzel Burke and Brian Shaw, Bryson Shaw, or heck, it could be Legend Cavazos and Demario McCall and Marcus Hooker. I mean, who, who knows? I mean, we're just not going to quite know for sure. I mean, I would think that, you know, if Proctor can't go, Bryson Shaw is probably the next guy up at that free safety spot. You know, I would think that, you know, if Banks or Brown can't go, that probably opens up more snaps for Burke and Watts and, and Cavazos. And, you know, I do got to give a lot of credit to Denzel Burke. I think to go in there as a true freshman and play outside cornerback in your first game and play 63 snaps and hold your own for an entire game. You know, I thought Minnesota came after him. I mean, they knew that he was a true freshman and they threw the ball at him a lot. And, you know, there were times where I think he gave up a little bit too much cushion and he was giving up, you know, throws, but he also made free pass breakups and, you know, looked like he belonged out there. And so I think he's a guy that's put himself right in position where even when seven banks and Cam Brown come back, I think he's going to have a chance to, continue to get real playing time because I mean, he played more than Ryan Watts. So he was basically their number one cornerback uh, on Thursday night. And so I think he's going to continue to have a role in that rotation, even when seven banks and cam Brown come back. And you know, that's very impressive for a guy that's a true freshman uh, playing in his first football game. Yeah. He's just been getting all types of praise from teammates and, and coaching staff, which you would, if you're a true freshman, and by the way, I looked this up earlier. He's only the 19th most highly rated uh, recruit in this uh, recruiting class for Ohio State. 18 guys per the 247 uh, Sports Composite, you know, rankings were actually ranked higher than Denzel Burke um, in this recruiting cycle for Ohio State alone. I mean, just think about that. That that's a crazy stat. And um, you know, I even thought, you know, it, it was obvious that Minnesota was going after him. They obviously knew that he was a true freshman. I think that that played into the fact that. You know, Ohio State didn't list uh, seven banks as a game time decision. You know, who knows how much that actually matters. But just not wanting to give Minnesota even more preparation 
to you know to know you know for sure that that a true freshman might be in there uh, playing you know a big role at corner. I thought on those two back to back plays where one of them was a pre- uh, in the end zone when they when they went after him, uh, two straight plays Minnesota did. Um, one of them was a pass breakup. The next one was called a pass interference. I thought kind of both of those, and you know maybe I'd have to look at it again more closely. I thought in in real time it seemed like either of those could have been called or could have not been called. Like I wouldn't have, you know, had an issue if neither of them had been flagged. I probably wouldn't have had a huge issue if both of them, you know, got flagged. So those are, those are well played, I thought, but could have possibly gone either way. But yeah, I think, you know, that's, a, this is, that's one of the breakout storylines of the season so far after one game is just the fact that Denzel Burke is, you know, getting the hype that he is because coming into the season, you know, what we've been talking about is who's going to be this next, you know, huge star for Ohio State, you know, in the, in the silver bullet, you know, group. Um, with all the the string of Kerry Combs first rounders and everything like that, uh, last year was Sean Wade going from being a projected first rounder to a fifth round uh, NFL draft selection. You know who's going to be kind of the next in that group, and um, you know right now with the two projected starters at outside corner being injured for the first game. I mean Denzel Denzel Burke's getting a lot of that that hype, and that cornerback position is is going to be very interesting to watch. And the secondary in general with uh, Proctor's status obviously being up in the air. Also, another kind of uh, storyline that, that is kind of going under the radar is just the fact that, uh, like, I, don't, I haven't heard anyone talk about this really, but the fact that Marcus Hooker, I mean, just, you know, completely passed up by Bryson Shaw. We all know what happened in the offseason with Marcus Hooker. But still, uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, are, were you, did that surprise you at all to see that Marcus Hooker, you know, pretty much right now doesn't have a, a role in that, that, that secondary? Not really. Because they've been talking up Bryson Shaw, and so I thought I thought Bryson Shaw was going to be ahead of Marcus Hooker on the depth chart. I thought Bryson Shaw was going to be the next man up. So not really. Yeah, I just think that that's something that I mean. Have you heard anyone talk about that? I, I really haven't. I mean, no, I um, think no, I do think that kind of got overlooked in comparison to you know what you mentioned earlier about you know, Marcus Williamson and Kayvon Pope. I think yeah, it kind of was overlooked that hey, a guy who was starting last year didn't play at all. Right. Yeah, that's just another one of those you know crazy you know, surprises with that. That's why, the, the, you know, so many of those big surprises were uh, among those, those defensive re- rotations, even if that wasn't, you know, the hugest surprise, but it will be interesting to see. I've got a lot of people on Twitter hitting me up about, you know, Bryson Shaw saying, you know, give that man some love. He, he did, uh, you know, he, he, he had a solid, he graded out as a champion for Ohio state. Um, maybe he will have a, a much bigger opportunity to, to kind of prove himself now here. If Proctor's kind of banged up, I thought Proctor actually had a really good game. You know, he had a huge tackle for loss, I believe. Um, he should have had a, a huge interception in a, you know, a huge return, if not for that Gantt penalty. Um, so, yeah, that'll be something to watch as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm glad you brought that up regarding Shaw because he's a guy who I saw some fans criticizing on Twitter and some people, you know, were, were kind of questioning why he was out there. And I thought from rewatching the game, like I thought Bryson Shaw played really well. Like I, I, I liked what I saw from him. Like I thought there were a few plays where – he did a really good job of cleaning things up on the back end where, you know, big plays happened and maybe people saw him at the end of the play and assume, you know, he was somehow responsible for it becoming a big play, but I didn't see that. I thought he was a guy who did a really good job in that game. And so I, I was impressed by what I saw, you know, now granted uh, going into this game against Oregon, uh, I think you'd certainly rather have Josh Proctor out there because he's a guy that's got a lot more experience. I think, Certainly, it's fair to have some trepidation if you have to go for Bryson Shaw in that game. But I liked what I saw. I, I thought, you know, there were some criticisms of him, but I, I thought we're off base because, at least for me watching the game, 
I, I just didn't see uh, him making many mistakes. Yeah, and here's a question here from uh, one of the members of the forum, Silver Sniper, uh, to make a prediction, Dan, make a prediction. After you're, you're garnering a bit of a reputation as Dan Stradamus, as I would like to say, after some of your predictions have been coming true recently. Um, will it be more of the same with the D this year as a continuation of last year's struggles under Combs, or will this D show itself to be much better in the end? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we've been asked this a lot, and I'm still kind of a boat of I don't really know. But to make a prediction, I do think it's going to be better. I'm not going to say much better because you know, to me much better, that's like saying it's going to be, you know, an elite defense. I'm not going to go there because I I don't know that I necessarily think it's going to get there, but I do think it's going to get better. I I said it before last week that I didn't think it, you know, if the first game didn't go great, that it should just be assumed the defense is going to be bad all year. I expected Minnesota to hit some plays. I expect Oregon hit some plays too, because I think Oregon's a good team, but I do think with a full season, with a lot of young players who are getting reps, I do think this defense is going to get better. You know, last year we didn't really see the defense get better. It, just, it, it, it things went wrong, and they just kind of never got better. And I think a lot of that had to do with how weird of a season it was. But I do think this defense is going to get progressively better. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily going to be an elite defense. I don't know if it's going to be a national championship caliber defense. I think. Time will tell on that, but I do think this defense is, is going to get better. And, you know, again, I think that's another thing in, in terms of, you know, maybe some of the criticism that's off base is, you know, I said some people like replying to me on Twitter, like, you know, well, it's, it's just clearly Kerry Combs's fault. Like Combs just isn't cut out for the job. Like, I think that's overly simplistic criticism here, especially after one game to just go, well, Kerry Combs doesn't know what he's doing. Like the defense did a lot of different things on Thursday than it did last year. And so, you know, let's see how it plays out. Let's see how it goes more games. Ultimately, the thing about all this, whether we're talking about scheme, we're talking about personnel, we're talking about rotations, whatever. Ultimately, all that matters is the results. If the results are good at the end of the day, then whatever they're doing to get those results, then it's going to look genius. And if it doesn't achieve results, then people are going to blame the, the things that led to the poor results. And so ultimately results are all that matter at the end of the day. But to me, I think it's way too early. Anybody who's jumping to conclusions about this defense after one game, especially when you consider, okay, it was kind of a weird matchup. They're about projected starting cornerbacks. They're breaking in so many young players. I just think it's way too early to jump to any conclusions about this defense right now. I agree. And, and you're absolutely right about one thing. Kerry Combs is taking a lot of heat from the Ohio State fans right now. I was saying before, like Master Teague's kind of maligned right now by the fan base. Kerry Combs very much, very much the same way right now, um, you know, with a lot of the, the, the people on Twitter and whatnot, um, with criticisms about Ohio State's defensive coordinator. One guy I also just wanted to mention, just because we haven't talked about him at all, is Lathan Ransom, who you, I think you can point to. Um, his strong play as being the reason why you don't see a guy like Marcus Williamson on the field in the first game. Um, he obviously had that huge hit. Um, I believe today that um, PJ Flex said that the the Big Ten um, officiating crew and whatnot said that they they missed the targeting on that. I think m- me and you both thought that it probably was targeting in real time that big hit that Ransom had late in the game that that caused the fumble. But I think that if we're talking about the Ohio State secondary and we're talking about another big bright spot for them that, that people can be excited about, it's the fact that a guy like Lathan Ransom in his second year has already, 
you know, taken the place of a fifth year senior who was a regular or, a, you know, a, a guy that played among the most snaps of the entire second year last year. Um, you know, he's, he's taken Marcus Williamson uh, out of the lineup. It would seem at least for now. Um, and I think that people can be excited about uh, the play like the ransom moving forward as well. Yeah, I do think he got away with one there. So I think uh, Ohio State will be glad that it has Lathan Ransom for the first half of this game because I, I do think he got away uh, with a targeting there. But, you know, ultimately uh, ended up being a forced fumble and basically sealed the victory for Ohio State. But, yeah, I think the fact that Lathan was the only of those free cover safeties that were talked about before the season, him, Marcus Williamson, and Cam Martinez, the fact that he was the only one who saw any defensive snaps against Minnesota is telling. I thought it was an up and down game for Lathan. I mean, watching the, the, the film, there were a couple uh, of of downfield passes where he, he's, his eyes kind of got lost. He kind of lost his man. He let a guy get open. And so I, I thought it was an okay first game for Lathan Ran- Ransom, in my opinion. I think there's a reason why he didn't grade out as a champion. And I think it's because he did make some mistakes. He wasn't necessarily as consistent as you want him to be at that spot. But I think you can certainly see the flashes of potential there. And the way that he's been talked about all offseason long, I am fully expect Lathan Ransom to be one of the best players in the secondary. And I think he's going to have a, a really good year. But, you know, I, I think you could also see in that first game that he still has room to grow. But one other question I did want to address we didn't get to, uh, oh, pretty Ricky asked about if there was any reason we saw more of JT Tuimolowau than Jack Sawyer in the first game, and I, I do think that's worth touching on because that was one that did surprise me a little bit. Like I would have guessed that Jack Sawyer would get in the game before JT Tuimolowau. I would have thought Jack Sawyer would get more snaps in that first game, mostly just because of the fact that Jack had been on campus longer. But you know, I think when I thought about it after the game. I think a lot of that did have to do with a matchup because, I mean, JT, I mean, we, we were standing together watching warmups and I made the comment to you that, I mean, JT just looks like a grown man. Like he, he's already 275 pounds and like he just looks built. Like you would never guess by looking at him that he's a guy that's only been on campus through for two months and hasn't gone through a full off season with Mickey Marotti. Like he's just built, he's a strong dude. And I think for this matchup, going against that massive offensive line and going against a run-heavy team, I think he's probably a better fit for that matchup. I think Jack's a guy who I think has a lot of potential to contribute this year as a pass rusher, but whether he's quite where he needs to be as a run stopper, I think remains to be seen. And I think the fact that he only played four snaps in this game probably tells you that they still have some questions about him as a run defender. I mean, I don't, I think simple fact is he didn't, he didn't play enough in this game to really uh, truly evaluate him. I think that's even true for JT playing 13 snaps, but my feeling is that probably had more to do with the matchup. And again, another one, I'm going to be interested to see what it looks like this week. You know, if JT continues to play more than Jack this week, then we can probably say, okay, JT's ahead of Jack in the pecking order right now. But I don't necessarily know if it's going to go that way. We're just going to have to see what happens on Saturday. Yeah, I'll just jump in on that and say when you're parsing the preseason and offseason comments from position coaches and whatnot, some of it you have to take with a complete grain of salt. Some of it does not come true at all. Some of the complete opposite comes true. But sometimes you hear something and you think, oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe that is telling. Maybe, you know, I should be reading in between the lines there on that one. And I will say that when Larry Johnson was talking about his group um, the last time we spoke to him, he was talking a lot about how JTT was really strong. He was you know, he had the strength coming in and, and he was saying that 
the, he was describing Jack Sawyer as if he didn't quite have the requisite strength coming in that he had to gain a lot of weight, but he still, even after gaining the weight, he still wasn't referring to Jack as a, you know, a powerful guy. He was saying he's a guy that uh, he's crafty. He finds a way to, to beat his, his, uh, his man and things like that. He was talking about his speed, but then he was talking about JTT in the same breath and saying, Oh, he has the strength, you know, to play right away. He came in very strong. And when he said that, I remember thinking at the time, like, maybe that is telling. And I think that's why maybe I wasn't as shocked to see him play a little bit less than JTT early on, just because of some of those, those physical traits. And I do feel like we should say, just really quickly, I, I was very impressed with what we saw from Zach Harrison in game one. I, I did mention him as a guy who could be the defensive MVP last week. And, you know, he, he did end up getting defensive player of the game honors from Ohio State had that great strip sack and then just even rewatch him a game. Like you just notice him like causing a lot more disruption up there, both against the pass and the run. I was really impressed by what we saw from Zach Harrison, but we'll see if that continues. But after all the talk about him this off season, I felt like in that first game, you could see why they were talking about him. Yeah. It's easy for us to get like, so, so lost in the weeds with the, the defense and the rotations kind of geeking out about the, you know, who played, you know, 10 snaps, this, that, and the third. But I think a lot of, you know, people watching that game are going to come away saying, wow, you know, Ohio State's possibly their two best defensive players, you know, came in and made the, the biggest play of the game potentially in Zach Harrison with the, the strip sack and then Haskell Garrett turning on the Jets, I might add, with just a – he looked extremely quick on that return. I mean, there wasn't yeah. anyone like that was going to stop him anyway, but he looked very fast and, and probably surprised some people with his speed there. But, but yeah, I think – I mean – I think a lot of people are going to watch that game and think that was a play that, that the two best uh, players on the Ohio State defense made to win the game, basically. Yeah, and that's that's one that'll go on Haskell Garrett's NFL draft highlight reel for sure. All right, a huge game coming up this week against Oregon, so we need to get to talking about it right now before we get any deeper in, into the show. And you know, this is a game that I think we've been looking forward to for a long time. It's a matchup of two top 12 teams going in, into this game. It's going to be the first home game with fans at Ohio Stadium since 2019. So, you know, that's a really exciting thing too. But, you know, I think the one question going into this game now is how good is Oregon actually? Because, you know, we did reference it before. They only won 31 to 24 in that first game. And I know one of the questions we were asked by STL Buckeye was, do you think this was more of a sign of getting settled in or are they an overrated team? And again, you kind of go back to how much can you read into just one week? I think it's probably more the former than the latter there in terms of that question. I, I don't see them struggle against Fresno state and go, man, I think Oregon's awful. I think Ohio state's going to blow the doors off them. I think, you know, maybe Oregon was looking ahead a little bit. Maybe uh, Fresno was a bit more of a challenge than they anticipated it would be. But, you know, I think especially when you come off of, okay, maybe Ohio State's season opener wasn't perfect, but then you see Oregon struggle against Fresno. It's like, okay, like, I think there's two ways you can look at that. Like, one, you go, okay, maybe we should worry a little bit less about what we saw from Ohio State when you consider, hey, here's another top team that's struggling to beat their first opponent. And, you know, in their case, it's not even a conference game. And then secondly, it's like, okay, maybe this is a game that Ohio State really should win pretty easily. I'm not saying that I think they will, but you look at that game, I think probably the thing that surprised me the most 
was that Oregon gave up 298 passing yards because I, I, I feel like Oregon has a lot of talent on defense. And now granted they were without two defensive backs who were suspended, who are going to be back this week. So that could certainly make a, a difference. And then they lost cave on Thibodeau, their superstar pass rusher, who's basically supposed to be the best pass rusher in college football since chase young. They lost him to an injury in the first half. His status is uncertain for this week's game. That could certainly make a huge difference in this game one way or the other. But, you know, I think my big question going into this game is, is Oregon's defense going to be a significantly tougher test than Minnesota's was? And then if it is, then if, if, if this is a lower scoring game, maybe than what we saw last week, then can Ohio State's defense make enough stops to win that kind of game? I think it is probably a, a bit of a lower scoring game. Personally, just with my own game uh, prediction that I'm that I'm working on. Yeah, but I think Ohio State fans after Thursday were thinking, "Oh man, we got to play Oregon next week." And now I think Ohio State fans, after seeing kind of a lackluster effort in Oregon's first outing of the season, are probably thinking, "Ah, oh, I mean." You know, it's still a still a, a tough opponent, but Oregon might not be this you know scary juggernaut team after all. But of course, a lot of it has to do also with just the fact that it's week one. You know, teams you know are shaking rust off and things of that nature. Um, I tend to think Oregon will probably play to its opponent, or, or could have been playing to its opponent in the first game, and, and will also do so in this game. I think it will it will show that there's not some huge disparity. You know, I still might pick Ohio State to win by a couple of scores. Nick, let's make no mistake there. But I think it, it can still show that it can be pretty competitive with Ohio State for for a good chunk of the game potentially. Now you know maybe some of that hinges on the status of Kayvon uh, Thibodeau, like you said. I think certainly C.J. Stroud probably sleeps better at night knowing that there's a chance that he doesn't play. And I think yeah. So one of the things with the the Ohio State offensive line is that I I, I want to say last year Minnesota's defensive line had the the least sacks on average in the entire Big Ten or something like that. So while we're talking, you know, everything about the fact that Ohio State's offensive line didn't give up any sacks, it was not against the cream of the crop in terms of pressure on the quarterback. Now, you know, if Kayvon Thibodeau uh, does manage to actually play at, at some level of, you know, if he manages to start in the game, let's say, um, it will be very interesting to see if that same level of pass protection holds up for Ohio State against potentially a much stiffer um, challenge here. And of course, like you talked about, Kayvon Thibodeau is not the only big defensive star for Oregon. They've also got a guy in, you know, Noah Sewell, who, um, you know, last year, just a true freshman, racked up a, a ton of uh, total tackles. You know, his numbers really, you know, jump off the page of you in, in such a small amount of games last year. He was a freshman All-American, according to some outlets. Um, he was a preseason All-American this year, according to some outlets. Um, in the game, he, saw, he had a, a strip or a forced fumble in the game, uh, as did Kayvon Thibodeau as well. Um, against Fresno State, it actually was the the difference in the the game could have been, and this wasn't caused by either of those two guys, but the Fresno State quarterback fumbled the ball on like a a, th- a thirteen yard second and ten run in the fourth quarter when Fresno State was had a lead on Oregon in the fourth quarter. It would have been uh, interesting to see if he could have hung on to that ball, and you know if Fresno State actually would have won that game. You know what people would have been perceiving this uh, Saturday matchup to be like. Um, but obviously, I think the better team won in that case. And they won on a, an Anthony Brown a, a rushing touchdown in the end of the game. And that's another kind of wrinkle we can get into here is um, 
you know, he only threw for 172 yards, uh, the Oregon quarterback who used to be the, uh, what was it? The Wake Forest quarterback? No, Boston College. Boston College, Boston College. And um, yeah, only threw for 172 yards, but he did establish himself as, as a big running threat. And that is a wrinkle that we obviously did not see this past week with Tanner Morgan being much more of a pocket passer, you know, game manager type quarterback, if you will. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see what you think on how Ohio State might respond to seeing kind of a new wrinkle with a, a dual threat quarterback. Yeah, I think the defense is going to have to do different things against Oregon than it did against Minnesota. And, and because of that, I think the defense could look significantly different, both in terms of personnel and scheme from what we saw against Minnesota. And again, it's another test for Kerry Combs. You know, I, I do think you know, this is a defense that you know, we're going to see some different looks more often than we did last year from this defense. And so I think it's going to be a, a different test. Certainly, like you said, I think that quarterback running threat from Anthony Brown, I do think is, is something new that this defense is going to have to contend with. You know, they've got you know, a couple good running backs as well and, and CJ Verdell and Travis Dye. And so, you know, this is an Oregon team that again, it, it, I don't know if they're as good of a running team as, Minnesota with Muhammad Ibrahim, but they do have some threats in, in that area. And so it, it is going to be a test still in the run game, especially you mentioned the quarterback position. I think my big question of Oregon is how much is Anthony Brown and those receivers really going to test Ohio state secondary? Cause there's obviously major questions about Ohio state secondary going in this game. You know, I know we were asked, about who's going to be out for this game. But the reality is we're not going to know for sure. I, I mean, no matter what they say, because again, last week they didn't even put seven banks on the dashboard and then he, he didn't play. So we're not going to know for sure, really, until we see warmups on Saturday morning, who's going to be starting in that secondary. But I think that, you know, my question is just how much of a test is Anthony Brown and those Oregon receivers going to present because you know brown had kind of like cj stroud in his first game he had some good plays and he had some some bad plays in that first game for oregon and so you know i think the teams that you know for this defense that are really going to scare you the most right now if you're an ohio state fan is a team that could really pass the ball through the air a team that's really got you know a dangerous passing game i don't know if that's his Oregon. i think i think if ohio state secondary plays poorly that Oregon can certainly take advantage, but I don't necessarily see it as like one of the biggest tests they're going to face this season in terms of a passing game. Yeah. It's just really interesting because obviously the, the, all the big questions were about the house state's past defense coming into the season and their first two opponents, you know, might not test that, you know, all that much. Um, you would think, you know, maybe they would, you know, opposing teams would kind of modify their game plan to, to take advantage of a potential issue, you know, in the Ohio State secondary. Um, but what for, from what we've seen, you know, t- only 200 yards from Tanner Morgan, uh, you know, from Anthony Brown, obviously like 172 yards or something through the air. Um, I think it will be very interesting to see how Ohio State defends the quarterback run for sure. Like you said, you know, maybe we see something vastly different. Maybe we see Craig Young in there th- this game, you know, who knows? Um, maybe we see less Tommy Eichenberg, you know, It'll be interesting to see what the rotations are for this situation. Um, Dan, another question here from one of our uh, wonderful forum users slash posters. 
I don't even, I don't know if I I know what the correct terminology is there because I haven't been on the site very long. I usually say but, listeners. Um, listeners, yes, yes. Um, what's the vibe you were expecting in the stadium at kickoff on Saturday? Is it going to be dull because people are late to their seats and it's a noon game, or electric because it's been forever since they got to watch a game in the shoe? Well, an interesting thing we learned on Tuesday morning is that Ohio State still had, as of Tuesday morning, 10,000 tickets available for this game. And so it's looking like attendance is going to be below 100,000 for this game, which is notable because from 2003 to 2019, obviously last year was an anomaly, but from 2003 to 2019, there was only one game where Ohio State didn't have 100,000-plus fans. So it does look like attendance could be down for this game, which is a bit surprising because of the fact that it's the first home game fans can attend in two years, and it's such a marquee matchup. Now, I think there's multiple factors that go into that. For one, COVID's still a thing. And so I think there's, you know, I know when I tweeted about that on Tuesday morning, I did have several people responding to me saying, they would go to the game, but because of COVID, they're you know just not comfortable going back into a big crowd yet. So I, I'm sure that is a factor in why some people are not going. I'm sure another factor is the fact that Ohio State has decided to charge $160 to, to get a ticket for this game, which that's a lot of money. I mean, I mean if I was a fan, uh, I would certainly have to think twice about paying that kind of money to go to a game. And so I think both of those factors are playing a big part here. And, you know, I think if, 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 if this attendance trend continues for the season, then I, I Ohio state might have to reevaluate whether, you know, it, it's ticket prices are, are really uh, going to hold up here. If, if they're struggling to sell them, if maybe they need to, you know, especially for those, you know, C deck tickets and whatnot, if maybe they need to start selling some of those at a more discounted rate, if they're going to uh, get back to selling out, the, the shoe, but you know, to get back to the real question, I mean, you know, 90,000 is still a lot of people. And so I don't know if that's necessarily going to damper the vibe significantly. I do think there's going to be a lot of excitement for this game, but I also know noon games typically aren't as raucous as night games. And so I don't know if I'm going to get my hopes up substantially that you know, this is going to be the most electric environment we've seen in years. I know that's what Ryan Day was hoping for when he talked to the media on Tuesday. I do think the noon game hurts that a little bit, but I do think there's going to be a lot of excitement among fans to be back in the stands. And I mean, I know I'm excited for it, you know, because I know, I don't know if you were at any of the games last year, Griffin, where, uh, you know, we were in the press box, but there weren't any fans in the stands that it was weird. Like it, it was weird going to football games and not having fans there. And I know just from watching, you know, being at the game on Thursday and then watching all the games this weekend, like you just realize like, man, college football is so much better for fans. So I know I'm excited to see the fans of Mishu again. I'm excited to see uh, the best damn band of the land play uh, script Ohio again. I'm excited for all the pageantry uh, of college football that we're used to. So I, I hope it's a great environment. Um, but I do think that noon game is still going to probably have an effect in terms of a little bit of a late arriving crowd and, and probably some empty seats at the beginning of the game. Yeah, I will say the one thing that was uh, possibly preferential about, uh, you know, there not being any fans in the, in the stands last year was that you could get, or not being very many at least, 
was that you could get around the stadium very easily as far as press is concerned, even though we weren't allowed to actually go to the interview rooms after um, the game ended and we weren't actually allowed to be on the field. We could still go down and you know record some stuff from pretty close to the field. So it was easy to get around around the stadium. Um, but yeah, other than that, I don't know if there was really a lot of uh, you know good things about that setup last year. One, one thing that was particularly annoying was that the, the pumped in crowd noise and, and the, the music in like a big empty stadium like that, it's so like abrasive and just so unnatural sounding when they, when they pump that stuff in there and you're just like, do we have to be doing this? Like, but yeah, no, it's going to be extremely exciting. I mean, on paper, you'd think it would be a raucous crowd just because, you know, people haven't been in the shoe for a game and, you know, since 20, November of 2019, I mean, that's a very long time. But we shall see. I know a lot of people, like you were saying, have been complaining on Twitter about the, the ticket prices for, for tickets and things of that nature. You know, I, I tend to think people will, will end up coming out to the game and, and, and supporting the Buckeyes because that's what they've always done in Columbus. Yeah, Dan, do we have anything else to touch on about the game itself? Or should we go right ahead here to our predictions per uh, STL Buckeye15's question here? Yeah, let's go ahead and make our predictions, Griffin. What do you got? I've got written on paper here, 38-24 Ohio State. Now, I would not be surprised to see, let's say, 35-24 or maybe 38-28, something like that. Um, but that's Mine, right mine is 38-28, so you almost, you're almost copying me here. It, hey, it sounds like a good score. I mean, I, I, can't, uh, I can't point out any flaws in that score there myself. Yeah, I was originally going to go with a one-score game, and I will say I think watching or, or I didn't watch Oregon on Saturday because it was on Pac-12 Network, which I don't get. So I heard about the game as other people were watching it. I, I think the Vente Bay struggled in that game and the fact that Kayvon Thibodeau's health is in question here. That gives me a little more confidence in, in Ohio State winning in a, a two-score game. But I still think it's going to be a competitive football game. I, you know, I think, you know, I know the spread for this game I think it, it, it's it's fluctuated a little between like 11 and a half and 14 points. But, you know, for me, I, I'm, I'm not betting it either way. Like, because like, I think, you know, o- Ohio State could win by 17 and it wouldn't surprise me. But I don't go into this confident that picking Ohio State to cover by double digits here. I think this is absolutely one of those games that could come down to a one score fourth quarter kind of game because I, I do think Oregon is going to play better playing up to the competition. I think Ohio state's going to do the same thing. And so if Ohio state were to win big, like it wouldn't shock me because I do think Ohio state is the better team, but you know, if Oregon were to win, it wouldn't shock me because I still don't know exactly how good this Ohio state team is. I don't know exactly how good the defense is. I don't know exactly how good CJ Stroud is. I think we're going to learn a lot more about that this week. But my feeling is Ohio State wins this in a close one, probably by two scores. Yeah, it's one of those things where we just don't have enough evidence yet on either team. There were some kind of wonky things with both games where you're still kind of like, okay, I don't really know if I've seen the full true representation of this team yet on either account there, um, which is why you know, it's hard to feel super confidently. I, I just feel confidently that Ohio State's not going to score as much as they did in the last game. Could I see Oregon scoring more than 24 points? I probably could, to be honest. But I mean, I also think that knowing Ohio State fans, even if Ohio State wins by, by two scores or wins by 10 in a 38-28 type of game, um, that a lot of Ohio State fans, even though now they're probably thinking that looks pretty good on paper, will still be complaining about a lot of things after the game, even if that is the final score. 
So that'll be fun to watch as well. It was a really interesting first week of college football. What what stood out to you the most? What uh, watching college football on Saturday in this first weekend? What was the thing that jumped out at you the most? The thing that jumped out to me the most was just that a lot of the you know big teams or and high profile players even at the quarterback position specifically kind of had dud performances. We saw some some big upsets. We saw some teams that people were super high on. Um, coming into the season, Oklahoma, for example, uh, Clemson, obviously, even though they had a very tough uh, matchup, even Oregon, you know, really kind of stumble in the, in the first game, which is why I've been kind of talking about the fact that in retrospect, Ohio State's performance looks a lot better because a lot of these teams that are kind of in that upper echelon really did struggle um, around the country, you know, particularly, obviously, Oklahoma, North Carolina got upset. Um, Washington got upset. A, a lot of ranked teams uh, went down. Um, if we're talking just Big Ten in general, I was really high on Indiana coming into this year, as I think a lot of people were coming off of a, a huge uh, year for that program last year with Tom Allen, you know, Big Ten Coach of the Year. Michael Penix Jr., I think, was a lot of people's front runner for Big Ten Quarterback of the Year, just with not knowing what Ohio State's quarterback situation would look like for sure. And instead, a, a huge setback loss for them, even though Iowa was a good team. I mean, let's. Let's not act like they're, you know, Rutgers or, or Maryland or something here. Illinois, maybe this year, more appropriate to say. But still, Indiana got, you know, just basically destroyed. Michael Penix Jr. throws three interceptions, could have thrown a fourth at one point. Uh, I think that was called back. And yeah, it just not the same magic that they had last season. And suddenly, you know, with, with losing the bowl game last year as well for Indiana, um, not quite the same luster uh, going into the second week of the season here. I think you mean Indonesia or Indonesia, however you pronounce the, the name that was misspelled on uh, at least one Hoosiers jersey on Saturday. But yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you on them. I mean, I, I mean, I, I've, I've been saying it all offseason. I thought Indiana was going to be the biggest threat to Ohio State. And so I'm not feeling you, you called me Dan Stradamus earlier. Not on that. I, I'm, I'm not feeling too great about that from what I saw. Now, granted, again, it's one game. I think there was a conversation that came up in our Slack over the weekend about is Indiana the worst team in the Big Big Ten East? No, I'm not going there. Like it's one week. Let's see what happened. Now, I do think a Big Ten East, though, like it was a really good first weekend for them. Other than Indiana, every other team in the Big Ten East won. I thought Penn State, it was obviously a defensive struggle. You know, I think if you were looking ahead to that Ohio State Penn State game, I think the question would be can can Penn State score? Michigan, they were playing Western Michigan, but they did have a, a strong first game. We'll see how they look against Washington this weekend. And we've seen a lot of times where Michigan comes out strong in the first couple games and things fall apart. So not going to give them too much love for that, but it was a good first performance for them. Michigan State, I thought, had a really good first game at Northwestern. Kenneth Walker looks like a guy who could you know, maybe be the best running back in the Big Ten if a way he played him at first game. We'll see. But uh, they had a really good first showing. And, and even Rutgers, like you mentioned, Rutgers putting up 61 points on Temple. Again, it's Temple. You know, if I was ranking the teams in the Big Ten East right now, I'd still put Rutgers as the team I'd probably pick to finish last in the division. But a good start for them. And then Maryland as well. That, that, that's a team I know when Colin and I talked about this offseason. And we were talking about the losable games. Like that was the one that like I felt more so than Colin. Maryland could be a bit of a threat. And 
watching them beat Collins' beloved West Virginia Mountaineers on Saturday, I felt that because Talia Tugavailoa is a pretty good quarterback. Rakeem Jarrett and Dante Demas are good receivers. That's a game that I kind of have circled there in that middle of the season now. Like, okay, like if, if Ohio State's secondary doesn't get it figured out by the time they get to that game, Maryland becomes a potentially dangerous opponent. Four, four more games to go until then. So we'll talk about that come October. But I do think this, you know, division's interesting. I mean, not saying I saw anything on Saturday that makes me think anything other than Ohio State should win the Big Ten East, but I do think it, it's a it looks like it's gonna be a competitive division. Like I think trying to rank two through seven in the Big Ten East right now is very hard. And I think it's gonna be a fun division to watch just in terms of if any of them can really challenge Ohio State. And then if not, then what's the battle for second place going to look like? Yeah, I should have mentioned Michigan State just putting on an impressive performance, putting up a lot of points as well. They haven't had, you know, a great offense, you know, in in recent years. And, uh, you know, obviously Kenneth Walker coming over. He was from Wake Forest, right? He's the Wake Forest transfer. Yes, yes, he is a Wake Forest transfer. That's why I had it it in my head mixed up earlier with Anthony Brown. But yeah, Kenneth Walker, a huge breakout performance, really putting the Big Ten on notice. Michigan State, even even you know if it might be a down year for for Northwestern, it still looks pretty dang good on paper for Mel Tucker to knock off the uh, reigning Big Ten West champion in Northwestern. Um, I thought it was just amusing to to look at you know the Big Ten uh, stats page. The two teams, you know, with a with a better uh, scoring offense right now than Ohio State are Rutgers at number one and Michigan at number two. Uh, I just thought that would be something to to uh, get the get the Ohio State fan base uh, worked up there. <laughs> but yeah, uh, then obviously the, the Penn State-Wisconsin game, no points scored until, what, the, the third or the fourth quarter? Third quarter. Yeah, the third quarter. Um, you know, that was when I, that was that, that, that's another trend that happened, uh, you know, across college football this, this week was just some high-profile games uh, w- with very few points scored. And, you know, the biggest game of the weekend being jo- number five Georgia against number three Clemson, where I believe were the rankings there. And, uh, you know, that one finished uh, with a 10-3 final score. That's just a shocking final score in like the modern age of, of college football, especially at that level. I feel like we're we're very used to seeing very high scoring affairs with a lot of these you know big time programs. I mean, you look at Alabama putting up fifty two points against Ohio State. Um, you know, even the Ohio State Clemson game. You know, some of the the Oklahoma games that they've had and you know CFPs past and you know Alabama Florida games. This that and the third. A lot of high scoring affairs. That one not so much ten to three. You know, Clemson couldn't even muster. A touchdown in that game and I do love the stat I have to say that Clemson is three and three in their past six games what what say you to that Dan yeah I mean I guess what I the biggest thing I say just coming out of that game is Clemson looks vulnerable specifically their offensive line looks really vulnerable and we saw that against Ohio State that Ohio State really dominated that battle the line of scrimmage and then Georgia took it to a whole nother level I mean Georgia was just all over uh, that backfield the ent- the entire night, and and Clemson's offensive line looked really overmatched. And you know, I did a piece a few weeks ago before the season, kind of comparing the top contenders. And to me, the big knock on Clemson was that offensive line because you just look at it. Not a ton of highly tethered recruits on that offensive line. It's a, it's a lot of guys who are three star, lower four star recruits there, and. I had a feeling that would be a weakness and it, and it was far weaker than I even imagined in, in that first game. And now granted 
Georgia could have the best defense in the country. Uh, their defense is absolutely loaded, and it was a really impressive defensive performance for them. It was a really impressive defensive performance for Clemson as well because Georgia's only touchdown came on a pick six. So uh, both defenses looked great in that game, but I did come away from you know watching Clemson thinking, hmm, like if this offensive line, you know, obviously now Clemson's got to run the table pretty much if they're going to make playoff. I mean, if their schedule. I think they really do have to run the table from here on out to have a chance to make the playoff. And if that offensive line, I, I think they could be vulnerable. If they, if, I think a porous offensive line and a lack of a running game there, I, I do think they're a team now that I'm not as confident, even though you know you, you went into that game going, okay, like whoever loses, like they're still going to be right in it. And Clemson is still right in it. Like I come out of that game feeling less confident that Clemson's going to actually make the college football playoff. We'll see what happens because they really still should beat everybody else on their schedule, but they do look a little vulnerable to me. A team that doesn't look vulnerable is Bama. Bama still looks like Bama. They absolutely blew out Miami, and I know I picked them to win the national championship. You came on board after we did our staff pick, so you didn't have to uh, put yourself out there and make a national championship pick, but I look at Alabama in that first game, and I go, yep. They're still the team to beat. 100%. And I, I wanted to say that it was a unilateral trend that, you know, all of the, the, the Heisman front runners this week were rather unimpressive. But I can't say that because Bryce Young, of course, for Alabama had a, just a monster game. And of course, if Alabama's going to look this good every year and win national championships, you know, like it's nobody's business, they're going to produce a lot of Heisman trophy winning players. And, um, yeah, I think we're we're seeing uh, you know Alabama still just look as good as ever. I mean, I don't know if a lot of people really put a lot of stock into that Miami team that they beat, but that is that's a more legitimate opponent than sometimes an Alabama will start the season off against. So you got to give them that. As far as Clemson goes, I don't think the you know, sports reference page I'm looking at right now has the updated uh, rankings, AP rankings. But as of uh, before uh, two o'clock today, Clemson does not have a ranked opponent scheduled on the rest of its schedule. So. In terms of that, I'm, I'm not going to doubt them for running the table, especially because even though I just said I like the stat of them having lost three of their last six games, let's be honest, those were two you know, top-tier programs in college football, if not top-tier, you know, just under the Alabamas um, of the world, with obviously Notre, losing to Notre Dame without Trevor Lawrence, then obviously losing to an Ohio State team that was a very good team last year, and then losing to a Georgia team who, you know, even with its offense not looking amazing, um, you know, has a ton of talent on that Georgia team. And, uh, you know, that team right now has, you know, the best win in college football right now with knocking off a uh, Dabo Sweeney. Yeah. And you have to think it's going to be tough for anyone to move the ball on either of those two defenses. And so, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I feel like the last couple of years, college football has really been dominated by the elite offenses, but can, maybe a couple of these, you know, really elite defensive teams kind of turned the tide this year and change things. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But to me, overall, I come out of a first weekend feeling probably better about Ohio State's playoff hopes and, you know, hopes of making it to the national title game than I did going in because, you know, I did predict Clemson as a national a championship game participant and, you know, coming out of first week, you know, I'd certainly say that, you know, I, I think Ohio state certainly offensively looks like a better team 
than than Clemson. I think Clemson's a better defensive team, but I, I come out of that first week going, okay, Bama's still Bama. They're still the team to beat. But you know, I see Oklahoma struggle the way they did. I see Clemson struggle offensively the way they did. Again, Georgia, great defense, still have questions about the offense. I come out of it still thinking like, okay, Ohio State, you know, they're they're one of the three best teams in the country right now, and they could be number two, and they could get to being number one. And so I come out of a first weekend uh, feeling still very good about, you know, Ohio State as a, as a playoff team and as a team that has a chance to, to get as high as the mountaintop this year. And certainly this upcoming week, we're going to learn more about whether Ohio State is that kind of team. Yeah, I find myself uh, kind of amused a little bit by, the, by, by Oklahoma's struggles just because I don't know if I was quite as on board with, you know, thinking that they were this, a team that deserved the number two ranking. I know a lot of people were just sky high on them after the way they finished last season, obviously, um, you know, come out ranked number two in the country and seeing them struggle was kind of, to me, like, I never really bought it in the first place, to be honest with you. But obviously that being said, they could still have an amazing season after that and, you know, win the national championship for all I know. But that's just one of the thoughts I had. Obviously I've said it multiple times already. I think Ohio state, you know, fans should be feeling a lot better about their team coming out of this weekend after seeing what a lot of those teams did. You know, maybe unless you watch the Alabama game, because in that case, you might have been thinking that Ohio State might not be able to measure up once again. But, you know, we shall see. We'll, sh- we'll see how it all plays out. It's good to talk about football again, Griffin. Isn't it, isn't it good to talk about actual games instead of speculating like we've had to do for the last seven months? Oh, it's so, it's so great to, to no longer be recycling the same uh, speculative uh, position group battle stories and, and things of that nature. And just, that, just having, you know, football on a Saturday, a whole bunch of different games. Uh, to watch. It was a great weekend and I'm looking forward to many more. Well, we, we'll have plenty more to talk about next week, but we've gone on more than long enough here. So uh, we got to wrap up this episode of real pod Wednesdays, but uh, be sure to check back next week when uh, we'll be talking about uh, everything we saw in Ohio state's second game of the year against Oregon. We will be there at the shoe. Uh, if you still want a ticket, go to OhioStateBuckGuys.com and you can get one. Or if not, Uh, You can tune in at noon on Fox on Saturday. So thanks again for listening in and we'll talk to you again next week.